Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Today we're going to talk about something that I think needs to be talked about, what we believe. What do we believe? You can say, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And that's exactly right. Beyond that, though, what is our faith? What does it mean? How do you explain it to someone who wants to know? Just recently, I read an article by the Barna Research Company, and the name of the article will give it away. The Christian church is seriously messed up. What they're saying here is that professing Christians are developing more and more decidedly unchristian beliefs, demonstrating that many of these professing Christians share, in fact, just like professing pagans. 56% of respondents who identify as Christian and who attend evangelical churches profess that having some type of religious faith is more important than which faith a person aligns with. Mainline Protestant churches were at 67%, and Roman Catholic at 77%. 41% of professing evangelicals thought that if a person is generally good or does good enough things in their life, they will earn a place in heaven. It seems to suggest that people are in an anything-goes mindset when it comes to faith, morals, values, and lifestyles, Barna said. He goes on to say, We find that most people say that the objective of life is feeling good about yourself that all faiths are equal, that entry into God's eternal presence is determined by one's personal means of choice, and that there are no absolutes to guide or grow us morally. That's a sad statement on the state of the church. Half of evangelicals believe that? That's nuts. So let me ask you some questions about the Christian faith. How many gods do we worship? How many persons are in the Godhead? Who are they? How many natures does the incarnate Christ possess? And what are the natures? Can someone be saved and not believe that Christ came in the flesh and that he rose from the dead? Because if you can't answer those questions along with some others, the Christian faith is in peril. Not because of the God of the Bible, but because of the so-called teachers of the Bible. The church has replaced orthodox biblical teaching for unorthodox secular teaching. Psychology has replaced theology. Critical race theory has replaced biblical race theory. Christians don't know or they don't hold to the teachings or the traditions of the church. They just know what they heard on TV or what the latest tweet is from the megachurch pastor. This is the case today, and it was sadly the case in Jude's day. So today, I'm beginning a new series called Defending the Faith, based on Jude's epistle. Jude is one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. Only Philemon is shorter than that. Who's Jude? Jude was Jesus Christ's half-brother. Same mother, different father. He and his brother James grew up in the same family, in the same house with Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, they mocked Jesus, their brother. They were embarrassed by him. 
Jude's real name is, can you guess? Judas. I wonder why he changed it. And it was after Jesus' resurrection, that's when Jude came to faith in Christ. Can you believe growing up with Jesus in your house and playing with Jesus as your brother and then not believing in him, but then he rises from the dead? You'd believe in him too, right? Jude had three brothers besides Jesus, James, Joseph, probably named after his earthly father, Joseph, and Simon. Now, we don't know the fate of Joseph and Simon, but we know that Jude and James became believers and actually leaders, prominent leaders in the early church. James wrote a letter, the epistle of James. James was in charge of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, which is an important council. Now, Jude's letter is different than a lot of other writings in the New Testament. His Greek is considered the most grammatically incorrect of the entire New Testament. He also quotes from non-biblical sources, including the book of Enoch. We're going to get there later in the sermon series. But one thing is for sure. Jude was so concerned about fake Christians and false teaching that he changed his mind. He was going to write on one topic, and he chose to write on this topic. He decided to write about defending the Christian faith. So I hope that we will be enlightened. I hope that we'll be encouraged. And I hope that we would read Jude's letter together and learn from it. So turn to Jude. It's in the New Testament right before Revelation. It's the last letter, last epistle. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So he isn't saying, Jude, I'm a brother of Jesus Christ. He's a slave, a follower, like we are, of Jesus Christ. And brother of James. So he mentions James. To those who are the called which is the church, beloved in God the Father, and kept or preserved for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, he says, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, so he's going to write a more general letter, I felt the necessity to write to you, imploring you that you contend earnestly. That's an athletic term which means contend for the prize, compete for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, which is the church. Today we're going to focus on verse 3. Jude says this, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down or passed on to the saints. There's three ways in which the faith is handed down, through scripture, through confessions and creeds, and through doctrine. So let's look at each one of those. How is the faith handed down? First, through scripture. Keep the main thing the main thing. The word of God. The living, breathing word of God. Look what Paul wrote to Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You know what all means in Greek? All. All Scripture is God-breathed, which means it's breathed straight out of the mouth of God through the Holy Spirit, wrote Scripture through humans whom He chose. But it's Him, God Himself. So that means 
that the Bible is alive. In fact, the Scripture tells us it's alive and active. And you know that the Bible, God's Word, never returns without accomplishing its purpose. And teaching the Bible is one of the most humbling things anyone can be called to do because God says that the teachers of His Word will be held to a higher responsibility. So I don't take it lightly, and I don't ever want to come off like I'm the only person that knows what Scripture means. That's not what I intend to say or do. But I do take God's Word seriously, and I want you to take it seriously, because it's God-breathed. It's His Word from His mouth. It's our daily bread. It's manna from heaven. And we can't live without God's Word. We can live physically, but we'll die spiritually. All Scripture. All Scripture. Now, when Paul was writing that, was the Bible in this form? No. In fact, his letters weren't even all finished. The New Testament wasn't even complete in a written-down format. So what's all Scripture? Well, it includes the New Testament, but doesn't it also include the Old Testament? Of course it does. The Old Testament is Scripture. And sadly, some theologians and some pastors are afraid of the Old Testament. It can be scary to teach from the Old Testament. Because of that, prominent preachers have called us, the church, to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament, they say. But here's what happens. When you unhitch from the Old Testament you're going to hitch up to false doctrine. Because one of the clarifying elements of a book or a letter to be included in the Bible, you know what it was? Was that it spoke to the Old Testament and that it was speaking to the fulfillment in the New Testament. Because without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make any sense. If you don't look at the whole Bible narrative and meta narrative, you're going to get lost because you're not going to understand what's behind what Paul writes and the gospel writers write. In 85 AD, Marcion, he was around when Paul was around, apparently. Marcion, he attempted to eliminate the Old Testament from the Bible and he was excommunicated. I wish Bible teachers would stop diminishing certain parts of Scripture because they think it's irrelevant or it's confusing. Because the job of a Bible teacher is to interpret and explain all Scripture. In order to do this, you have to know it. You have to respect it. Because you can't defend what you do not know. Does anyone know how many books are in the Bible? 66. Written by how many authors? 40. Over a 1,500-year time span from various geographic locations. But you know what the miracle is? It's one cohesive story. That's the miracle of the Bible. That God breathed His Word in and through authors, human authors, over a 1,500-year period, and it all has one message. That's amazing. But you have to defend the faith that was passed down to us. 
it begins with defending the Bible. We have to stand up and defend the Bible because it's God's Word, it's true always, and it's thoroughly inspired. So, how's the faith handed down through Scripture? Secondly, through creeds and confessions of the early church. Remember, Scripture is the main thing, because we have to begin with Scripture. Creeds and confessions support Scripture by providing written statements that help clarify the Christian faith. Now, these confessions came mostly from the effort of certain theologians in the early church to defend the Bible and to ward off heresy. And although these heresies consisted of various doctrinal errors and false teaching, the main heresies that they were warding off, which caused them to write these creeds, were in the area of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Whether it be Gnosticism, which denied the humanity of Christ, or Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ, these ongoing debates regarding the person and nature of Jesus Christ help forge forward these important creeds and confessions that help define important doctrinal issues and understanding. Three creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed. And I invite you to look at those in detail later. You can see how these creeds came about, how they evolved, especially regarding how Jesus Christ is described and defined. Now, earlier, I asked you, how many natures does Jesus Christ possess, and what are they? Do you know the answer to that question? The answer is, Jesus Christ possesses two natures, human nature and a divine nature. Now, he's not two persons. He's one person with one body, but with two natures. Think about that. Jesus is the first and only theanthropic person, meaning theos, God, anthropic, human. He is the God-man. But how can that be explained? How can that be described? The early theologians struggled with this question because although the New Testament speaks to that, a lot of confusion and a lot of errors. So this led them to hold these councils where the church leaders and theologians would come and debate and hash out issues, especially regarding heresy. The two most famous were the Council at Nicene, which was in AD 325, and the Council at Chalcedon, which was in 451 AD. It was the Arian controversy, named after Arius, a theologian, that paved the way to the Nicene Creed. Arianism denies the divinity of Christ by maintaining that the Son of God is not the same essence or substance, and the word in Greek is hypostasis, as the Father. So Arianism denied the divinity of Christ. They defined him as a created being who wasn't co-eternal or consubstantial. You might have heard that word. 
the same substance as the father. So what happened? A man named Alexander of Alexandria brought this Arianism heresy to the church leaders. And Alexander said that Arius had a problem, a doctrinal problem, because Arius focused only on passages of Scripture that defined Christ in human terms. And he neglected the passages that describe his divinity. Do you see what happens when you choose? You cut and paste? You circumvent certain Scriptures because they're hard to understand or confusing or they go against your worldview? What happens is you diminish what the Bible is saying and cause a heresy. So this is why it's important to see and read Scripture in the full context. So a long time ago, there was a fine gentleman who wanted to be a leader in our church. So I would sit down with him, and we talked about doctrinal things. And one of the things we got to talking about was salvation. And it became evident that this person believed that someone could lose their salvation. He based it on two verses in Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, because I'm going to read what he based his theology on about losing salvation. So it says here, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So he's talking about believers. But then verse 6 says, and then have fallen away. It is impossible for them to be renewed and to repent since they again crucify the Son of God and put Him to shame. Reading that, you could go, wow, these people are believers. They're enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the Word of God, but they fall away. Here's the problem. He took those verses out of context because the entire letter to the Hebrews was with regard to not losing your salvation, but was trying to work your way to heaven. So they were saved, but they went back to their Jewish way of life. They were sacrificing animals. They were trying to do what they did before and remain New Testament believers. The author of Hebrews is saying, you've tasted all those good things. Why do you want to go back to works? It's not about losing your salvation. So we have to be careful. This is a term that you might want to take into consideration. It's called proof texting. When you proof text, you pull a verse or a passage out of context to prove your theological stance. Instead of pulling the passage out and getting out of it what it means, you take it out of context so that you can fit it into a nice point in your sermon. Or you can fit it in to how you want to live. And the problem with proof texting is this. A text without a context is a pretext to a proof text. We have to be careful. Now, the Nicene Creed, I'd love you to focus on that because you can see the language, especially regarding Jesus Christ, as one substance, the same substance with the Father, But here's the problem. The Nicene Creed came out. It was awesome. And then more heresies came up. And they had to be dealt with. Namely two. 
Apollinarianism, which is named after a theologian named Apollinarius. And he said that Christ did not have a human soul or a reasonable natural soul. Problem is, if he has two natures, he had to have a human soul. And think about this. When Jesus was on the cross and he was dying, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Was he committing his divine spirit? Or is he committing his human spirit? Think about that. If it was divine spirit, then that would mean that he died. God died. God never died. In Christ's humanity, he died. Remember, he had two natures. One body, one person. So his human soul was what helped him feel what we feel. You know, the Bible says that he felt all the things we feel. He was tempted in all ways, but he did not sin. He was without sin. That was the first heresy, Apollinarianism. I'm trying to make this as simple as I can. It's important stuff, but I want you to get what's happening in the history of the church. Then the next heresy was Nestorianism, which was named after Nestorius. And here was his heresy. He separated Christ's two natures into two separate subjects or people. And these two subjects acted apart from each other, rather than one person with the communion of the two natures. And Nestorius referred to Mary, the Virgin Mary, as the mother of Christ. He would not refer to her as the mother of God or the bearer of God. So this would mean that God did not come as a human in birth, but rather that Mary was the mother of just an exceptional man. Because think about this. If you say Mary is the mother of Christ, Jesus Christ, that could mean that she's the mother of just his human side. But isn't it true that when Jesus was walking around, that he didn't lose his divinity, divine side? He was still God. He chose not to use some of those divine tools. I think of, you know, two toolkits, right? He had his human toolkit. He had his divine toolkit. And at any time he said, don't you know I can call 10,000 angels to get me out of here? He walked on water. He did all these divine things, but he held back. It didn't mean he didn't have his divinity. He held back so that he could live a human life and die in my place. So if you say Mary is mother of Christ and not the mother of God, then you can diminish who Jesus Christ actually is. Now, that's not to say we should worship Mary because Mary is not God. Mary is a very important person, right? But if you think about it, we have God in us. Think about how important you are. God lives in you. So that's amazing. But here's the problem. What happened was they didn't want to diminish Christ's divinity, and they didn't want two separate subjects because it was combined in one body. So they had another council in Chalcedon in 451. And it was a culmination of hundreds of years of debate. And it's one of the most important confessions in the history of the church. I want to just talk through this. It starts off with we, 
It's important to understand because these confessions are regarding the corporateness of the church. We, then following the Holy Fathers, and that would be the apostles and the Holy Fathers before them, the early fathers of the church, all with one consent, so they're all in agreement, teach men to confess this, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in the Godhead, which is the Trinity, and also perfect in manhood or humanity. Truly God, truly man, of a reasonable, rational human soul and body. That's what they were trying to fight against. He did have a human soul. Consubstantial or coessential, the same substance, with the Father, according to the Trinity. And consubstantial with us. The same essence of humanity, according to the manhood, in all things like us, but without sin. Begotten. Now that's a confusing term. It's not he was born or made. It's a relational term. Begotten, in relationship, before all ages, with the Father, according to the Trinity. Because think about this. If the Father is eternal, he had to have a son who's eternal. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, he was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Theotokos is the Greek word. This is originally in Greek. According to the manhood, the God-man, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten or one and only, one of a kind, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So he's one person. The distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union. So there's a union there. But rather, the property of each nature being preserved, both human and divine, and concurring in one person with one substance, one substance, so that's the hypostasis, the substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That is an important part of our faith. It's been handed down to us. That's why Jude is writing, you can't just make stuff up. You got to understand and know what's going on with our faith. Now, if you have any other questions, please feel free to contact me. But the main thing is this for our purpose today is that we can't just pull stuff out of context. We have to understand what the Bible is saying and these creeds and confessions help us do that. So how is the faith handed down? Number one, scripture. Number two, creeds and confession. And number three, through sound doctrine or orthodox teaching. 2 Timothy 4.3, read this with me. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I don't want to be an itching ear teacher. I want to be a teacher of truth. It's that entertainment thing in us. We want to be entertained, you know? But that's sadly... The general state of the church today can't be that way. 
because orthodoxy is correct teaching. So how can a person be certain that he or she is teaching and learning the Bible correctly? First, you got to believe that Scripture is God's Word, okay? And the entirety of it, not on hitching parts and cutting and pasting. And then secondly, confessions and creeds. Are you in line with the traditions of the church? Because if you come up with some new doctrine, odds are you're wrong. And then third, sound doctrine. Are you teaching the truth or are you teaching what is popular? Now, God exhorts us through his prophets to be earnestly to defend the faith that was handed down to us. We have to defend it with our life. Generally speaking, the faith that was handed down has been thrown out. We need a revival. Would you um, agree with me? We need a revival. But here's the thing. You can't have a revival without the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. You can try and pray yourself into a revival. You can try and fast yourself into a revival. But all revivals in the history of the church have happened from the teaching and the preaching of the orthodox, correct Word of God. And not watering it down, preaching it the way it is. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, there is a heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven. You can't get to heaven by your own merit. You need to repent and stop believing what you think is true and start believing what God says is true and then live that way. That's how revivals start. So why do you think Babylon, this world in which we live, has tried to silence the church? They tried to make us afraid. They tried to lock us down because Satan, the prince of the air behind all that, doesn't want the word to get out. But we have to stand up. We have to defend the faith that has been handed down to us. And we can't keep it secret. We can't keep it locked down. And we can't keep it in quarantine. We have to tell everyone, are you with me on this? Will you contend with me and earnestly defend the faith by defending God's word? And then you're defending him. Will you invite others along Will you pray for a revival? But will you live the active word of God and put God first in your life and do not forsake the gathering of God's church, even in this type of gathering? It's so important. And every day, read the Bible. Get a Bible plan. They're all over the place. Start eating and digesting the word of God. And I'm here to be your guide. And I want to help you. And you can contact me anytime. I love talking about this stuff. I love helping people understand the Word of God, because I'm still understanding it. So let's do this together, as Jude implores us to earnestly defend the Christian faith. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Thank you for all those that have come before us that have stood up and have died defending the faith. Lord, We think that it's bad now. What about those who were cut in half, who were shot and killed? I know someone who has had a grandparent. She kept the Bible, and I asked, why are those pages red? And she said, my grandfather was praying and reading the Bible, and an unbeliever came in and shot him in the head for that. And there was blood all over the pages. We need to stand up. Lord, make us and convict us to repent, Lord, and to listen to you. Because when we listen to you, 
we are defending the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bardowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com. Make me-